quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasedarada.com. So we're going to start out tonight with a bit of celebration. Of course, all of that is relative these days. It seems that some sanity and reason are returning to the highest office in the land. Obviously, though, much remains to be seen as the years progress. We're rejoining the Paris Peace Accords and the World Health Organization. Apparently, we will start to have a viable COVID-19 vaccine plan, as it's been rumored, uh, even though um, Dr. Fauci has tried to quell some of those rumors that basically the previous administration had zero plan for how they were going to continue to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. And on that note, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci has pledged to go back to having briefings and actual transparency on what the government is doing. (sighs) What an amazing thing to have to say. But At least I can say it. We are moving forward into a new day. Now, the Biden administration will be looking to immediately begin rolling back changes to environmental protections and rules and to otherwise really start to undo the damage that has been wrought over the last four years. The administration has really hit the ground running and is already clearing out as many of the previous administration's bumptious and corporate-leading environmental rules, which were pushed through at the EPA, including halting the Keystone XL pipeline, stopping fossil fuel expiration in ANWR, that's the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska, re-strengthening the Clean Water Act, and reversing plans to shrink several national monuments, including the Grand Staircase Escalante Monument in the Southwest. Now, one of the keys to this is the announcement that Eric Lander will become the Director of the Office of Science, Technology, and Policy, which serves as the chief, Chief Science Advisor to the President And for the first time, the position will become a cabinet-level position. That's pretty exciting. Science will always be at the forefront of my administration, and these world-renowned scientists will ensure everything we do is grounded in science, facts, and the truth, President-elect Biden said in a news release announcing the appointments. Now, Lander was a principal leader of the Human Genome Project, and a professor of biology at both MIT and Harvard Medical School. Lander served in the Obama administration as co-chair of the President's Council of Advisors of Science and Technology. And basically, that's a group of scientists who all uh, counsel the executive branch on all sorts of different forms of um, science and technology um, activity. The deputy director will be Alondra Nelson, president of the Social Science Research Council. 
Nelson is a scholar of science, technology, and social inequality. And her most recent book is called The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reparations, and Reconciliation After the Genome. She's also written several other books, including Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party, and The Fight Against Medical Discrimination, and Technicolor, Race, Technology, and Everyday Life. She created the hashtag coronavirus syllabus on Twitter, which was a crowdsourced list of resources which shed light on the social implications of the pandemic. In an interview about the work, she noted, one unexpected consequence of social distancing is that there's quite a lot of writing about COVID-19, but it is quick writing about the contemporary movement. A mentor and friend on Twitter said, people should be teaching the virus. And I thought, well, why don't we start a syllabus that provides more depth and context? My areas of research are in the sociology of science and technology, and also the sociology of of race. So I knew that there was a lot of scholarly literature to help us contextualize this time. There can be comfort in taking a step back to remember what we had to deal that we had to deal with quarantines and the social implications of infectious disease in the past. It helps to make sense of the world. So uh, that is actually from an interview that she did on the subject. And so in October of 2018, she actually wrote an op-ed for the New York Times on Elizabeth Warren's decision to have a genetic test to prove her claim of Native American ancestry, which of course has been very fraught. Uh, she noted, when we're faced with difficult issues about the past that bear on the present, it is tempting to take these tests as proof of identity, but these genetic tests cannot confirm social dynamics. Identity is socially, politically, and legally determined, even if shaped by genetics. Yet genetic ancestry testing does not offer insights about these dynamics, so we can't look to DNA to settle debates about identity. She also noted the hard science fact that data sets used for comparison are lacking in diversity, with the one used in this case having a mere 37 samples of people, quote, from across the Americas with Native American ancestry, unquote. Now, this is obviously an extremely small fraction of the many native genetic lineages throughout this country. Now, most, much of that is actually intentional. Native American populations, frankly, having been badly used by Western culture since day one, have been hesitant and in some cases outright hostile to the idea of sharing their DNA for such endeavors, in part for the very fact that they strongly reject genetics as a marker of who belongs to their community. And I think that that's totally valid. Um, you know, I would wish that they would be more interested in sharing uh, their genetic heritage simply for the ability to be able to see how different alleles have uh, persisted in different populations, um, population level data. But I also completely understand as much as it makes me sad and frustrated why they would be hesitant. Um, I think we've talked about this before. There was at least one instance 
where people um, where a people had actually agreed to do um, some talking to to researchers, and then those researchers actually took blood samples from them, sequenced their DNA, used that without ever talking to the community about what they were actually doing. And I'm sure that's happened more than once. And so modern uh, Native American tribes tend to be pretty wary of this kind of um, what they consider to be invasion of their um, community autonomy, um, as well as bodily autonomy. And so unfortunately, sometimes you can't have what you want from people because of past mistakes. And so even though it might seem a little bit frustrating that they might not want to share their genetic uh, markers, it makes complete sense based on the uh, historical and social relationship that they have had with Western scientists. And so Nelson also uh, concluded the article with a caution about the use of genetic testing for intrusive uh, activities like criminal justice searches and other dubious uses, which of course I have mentioned several times over the last few years. Um, so it is very much a be careful what you wish for kind of situation when you're dealing with these kinds of genetic testing uh, protocols because we now have had actual cases where law enforcement has gone into genetic databases and found people through their connections with other people. Um, and so that is a little bit scary. And I know that everyone thinks, well, you know, if criminals hadn't done whatever they did, they wouldn't have to worry about this. But uh we know that the criminal justice system is deeply flawed in this country. And so um, it is continues to be. And, you know, I've never done anything particularly illegal that I can think of, but I would not uh, at this point in time uh, send out for one of those genetic tests, uh, not only because I wouldn't want to uh, open up anyone who is related to me to scrutiny by um, the police, but also because, again, the samples aren't representative. Um, of course, I would probably be okay uh, having, being clearly from uh, Western European stock. I don't think that my results would be particularly uh, surprising, but I still would not engage in it unless uh, really much more uh, or any kinds of laws were passed about how that information could be used and distributed. Um, I just don't think we have the right kinds of laws around that right now. And so as much as I know that a lot of people have found this to be really interesting and exciting to them, I would still caution uh, to hold off until the law catches up with technology. Um, and that's that's a continuing problem. And hopefully maybe in the next few years, we'll get a little bit of progress on that, which is that we will get some laws that actually start to address uh, our newfound technological abilities that are often uh, pretty invasive and uh, pretty hard to be able to um, 
deal with when it comes to actual balancing of technological advances and privacy. Okay, uh, let's get back to this though. Uh, the team, there are several other members of the team that were announced. And so the Presidential Council of Advisors will be co-led by Maria Zuber, a geophysicist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who has been involved in more than half a dozen NASA planetary missions, and Francis Arnold, a chemical engineer and Nobel laureate from uh, Caltech. And so uh, Dr. Francis Collins will continue as the director of the National Institutes for Health, because uh, he seems to be doing perfectly fine. Um, and Dr. Rochelle Walensky will head the Center for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And so Dr. Walensky is a former professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital. She notes that the CDC have been muzzled under the previous administration. The good news in my mind is there hasn't been a mass exodus of the exodus of the talent. The talent is still there, Walensky said during a live stream interview conducted by the Journal of the American Medical Association. What I need to do is to make sure that those voices get heard again. And so she hopes to improve communication both within and outside of the CDC by, for instance, and I'm very excited about this, developing a social media plan. Because again, we need to move with the times. The right information, I think, is not getting out there, she said. For example, if you search vaccine hesitancy on Twitter, you'll mostly find tweets from people who are hesitant to get the vaccine rather than posts from the scientific community or the CDC. She also will have her work cut out to her cut out for her to rebuild and support the public health work of the CDC beyond its work on the pandemic. But she seems really uh, interested in doing this and she seems very enthusiastic and really interested in the work which is in which is to bring science back into the picture. So of course, I'm very excited about that. Um, hopefully we'll also soon know who will be the new head of NASA, uh, Jim, Bridenstein, uh, um, or Bridenstein, I forget, I'm sorry, I forget how to pronounce it, uh, resigned effective this past Wednesday. Um, and so I think he just, you know, he felt that as a uh, Republican and someone who was tied to the previous administration, it wouldn't really make sense for him to continue. Um, and Frankly, he didn't really know that much about NASA. So maybe hopefully someone who knows a little bit more about NASA and spaceflight and all of these things will be put in, but who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Okay, so let us move on now from talking about uh, things pertaining to the Biden, Biden administration's uh, sort of uh, rollout of uh, recalls, shall we say. Um, and so they are really getting going on rolling back all of the uh, rollbacks. <laughs> it's a weird world that we live in. <laughs> um, and so I have to say, I am very excited about that. I was 
little bit worried that they wouldn't be as concerned about things like um, EPA rules while they were focusing on the pandemic, but they've, they've surprised me. Um, and yes, a lot of this was done through executive orders, but a lot of it was done through executive orders in the Trump administration. So a lot of these executive orders are frankly just getting rid of previous executive orders. So I'm a little less hesitant from a politics perspective to be mad at them. Um, and given the current climate in the Senate, I'm even less worried about it because, uh, as much as we would like to think that things might progress smoothly now, that doesn't look like it's particularly likely. Um, and you can listen to uh, shows like Civil Politics to talk about that more. I'm going to leave that for now because we're here to talk about science for the most part. <laughs> and actually have a little bit of exciting news. So um, Representative Jack Patrick Lewis, a Democrat from Framingham, has proposed a bill that would adopt either Podocosaurus holiocensis or Anchiosaurus polyzulus as the state dinosaur. And so P. Haliocensis, or swift-footed lizard of Holyoke, was a carnivorous dinosaur between three and six feet. It was discovered near Mount Holyoke in 1910 by Mignon Tablet, the Talbot, excuse me, the first woman to name and describe a dinosaur. While the only known fossil remains were destroyed in a fire at Mount Holyoke College, casts of the fossils remain in various museums across the country. A polyzulus, or much sought after near lizard, was a, herb was a herbivore first discovered in 1855 near Springfield and was among the earliest North American dinosaurs to be described by science. You can view specimens of this guy at Amherst College's Benensky Museum of Natural History and at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. And you can actually learn more about them and vote yourself through the 29th of January, 2021. Uh, the easiest thing is just to Google Massachusetts state dinosaur uh, to find the poll. I actually had a pretty tough time choosing, but ultimately went for P. Holiocensis due to its discoverer. But obviously, you can absolutely decide for yourself which you would choose, and you should absolutely go and uh, choose one or the other. I was unprepared for the excitement that this project would generate, said Lewis, adding that tens of thousands of people have already voted in a poll to choose the dinosaur. My hope continues to be that this project will help young people better understand the prehistoric world and career opportunities that might grow out of a childhood interest or a love of science. And so Lewis is being aided by members of the Pioneer Valley scientific community, including um, professors at Mount Holyoke, um, the uh, curator over at the Benensky um, museum at Amherst College, as well as Representative Mindy Dom and Senator, Senator Joe Comerford. 
Ultimately, if this exploration of a state dinosaur helps even one person make contact with their local elected officials, and if that contact is helpful down the road, it, this would have all been worth it, Lewis told CNN. And in case anyone ever doubted it, dinosaurs are still pretty cool. And speaking of dinosaurs, paleontologists have discovered bones from the pelvis and pectoral girdle, as well as 24 vertebrae from the tail of a 98 million year old titanosaur, which may represent one of the largest animals to ever walk the earth. The fossils, which were first discovered back in 2012, are found in the Candeleros Formation, which is thick sedimentary deposits found in the Nuquén province in Argentina's northwestern Patagonia. They believe it could exceed the size of a Patagotitan, which lived between 195 million years ago and measured 122 feet long. It is a huge dinosaur, but we expect to find much more of the skeleton in future field trips, so we'll have the possibility to address with confidence how really bigoted it was, Alejandro Otero, a paleontologist with Argentino's Museo de la Plata, told CNN. Titanosaur fossils have been found on every continent except Antarctica, but the largest examples have been excavated in Patagonia. The researchers have not yet determined which species the fossils belong to, but they believe that it adds to the evidence that larger titanosaurs coexisted with medium-sized titanosaurs and small-sized rebachidosaurids during the early part of the late Cretaceous period, beginning 101 million years ago. These size differences could indeed explain the existence of such sauropod diversity in the Nekin Basin during the late Cretaceous in terms of niche partitioning, they wrote. So basically they would each have a different niche that they filled, and so they wouldn't be in direct competition with one another. And it is really crazy to think of these huge herbivorous dinosaurs roaming the earth, uh, weighing at times in excess of 40 tons. Okay. From the other side of the earth comes another extremely interesting fossil. Paleontologists have finally been able to describe the exterior anatomy of a dinosaur's cloaca. Much like modern much like modern lizards and most birds, dinosaurs had cloacas, a sort of one-stop shop for urinating, defecating, and copulation. The extremely well-preserved cloaca comes from a specimen of Psittacosaurus, a Cretaceous dinosaur that would have looked somewhat like a cross between a lizard and a parrot, having a hard beak, for instance. The dino was excavated from the Liaoning, from Liaoning in northeast China and is, as mentioned, very well preserved, with much of the dinosaur's skin and external features visible, including a bristle of uh, fibrous um, tufts forming a ridge along the tail and pigmentation around the cloaca itself. All of the magic of a cloaca happens on the inside, Jakob Winther, a paleontologist at the University of Bristol, Bristol and lead author of the recent paper, said in a video call with Gizmodo. The outside is quite nondescript, 
And then there's all kinds of amazing stuff happening inside because it's a multi-purpose opening. Now, unfortunately, only the exterior of the cloaca was preserved, which featured stippled black and burgundy pigmentation and a small tan copper light. And so the cloaca was actually also um, in the shape of a V. Um, some are simple uh, slits. Some are either curves uh, going up um, or going down, crescents. Uh, but this one was a V-shaped. And so, unfortunately, due to the fact that the interior was not preserved, we will not be able to know whether the animal mated using intermittent organs like humans or cloacal kissing as most modern birds do. Fintner, for his uh, thought, believes the cloaca suggests that the dinosaur would have mated using intermittent organs, though it's not clear whether or not the animal was a male or a female. The researchers could see, however, that there were lobes on either side of the vent, which were swollen and suggest that they may have been glands used in the production of olfactory signaling. We can make a couple of inferences about two possible ways that they could communicate with one another, which mirror methods that we see in living animals, study co-author Diane Kelly, a biologist specializing in sexual reproduction mechanisms at UMass Amherst, explained. We're not making that up just, for whole, just from whole cloth. Those are both modalities of signaling that we see in living animals using the same region of the body as well. Now, Vinther points out that the cloaca is structurally similar to that of modern crocodilians externally, though they do not feature specific pigmentation. For now, we'll have to wait to find a better preserved internal structure to learn more about how the cloaca on dinosaurs functioned as opposed to the myriad species which feature the organ today. Mammals are the only ones that have separated these things out, Binther said. We are actually the weird ones. So that is pretty darn interesting. All right, we are going to take a break and do some show promos and a couple of PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to switch over and talk about some mammals and then some other animals along the way. So do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. 
cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Welcome back to Evidence-Based Radio. We, as advertised, are going to switch now and talk about mammals for a bit. And so we're going to start off with what is kind of a, frankly, crazy animal cognition story. You may have heard about the long-tailed macaque monkeys, which live around the Uluwatu Temple in Bali, Indonesia and which are known for stealing items from tourists and only relinquishing the stolen goods for food rewards. A new study has found that some of the monkeys intentionally steal higher value items in order to extract larger rewards. Researchers at the University of Lethbridge in Canada and the Udayana University in Indonesia described the monkeys as having, quote, unprecedented economic decision-making processes. The practice has been observed in studies with captive monkeys in the lab as well. The activity is a population-specific, prevalent, cross-generational, learned, and socially influenced practice, the researchers write. Now, they found that adult monkeys were the most adept at stealing higher-value items and trading them for higher-value foods. Our field observational and experimental data showed, one, age differences in robbing bartering success, indicative of experimental learning, and two, clear behavioral associations between value-based token possession and quantity or quality of food rewards rejected or accepted by sub-adult and adult monkeys, suggestive of robbing bartering payoff maximization and economic decision-making. 
And so basically what happened is that the team grouped the tokens into six different categories. Empty containers such as phone cases and camera bags, accessories, hairpins and key rings, hats, headgear and caps, shoes, flip-flops, heeled sandals, glasses, eyeglasses and sunglasses, and electronic devices and wallets, cell phones, cameras, purses. They were then divided into low, medium, and high value tokens according to how often they were bartered for by humans. Containers and accessories were low value, hats and shoes were medium, and glasses, electronic devices, and wallets were high value tokens. The older the individual, the better they were at these transactions, both in gathering high value tokens and in successfully obtaining high value rewards in exchange. Dr. Jean-Baptiste Leca, the lead author of the study and associate professor of psychology at the University of Lethbridge, notes that this is an expression of cultural intelligence. These behaviors are socially learned and have been maintained across generations of monkeys for at least 30 years in this population, he said. So that is pretty impressive they are able to actually, they've actually figured out that the better thing they get, the better they can get for it. Um, and I want to say that's both wonderful and also extremely depressing. <laughs> um, I was talking to my husband about this and he uh, said, oh, send me that story so I can show a friend that uh, capitalism exists even in the animal world. Um, and he was joking, but it, it was really sad that I feel like we've infected them with capitalism, not that they naturally developed it. Um, but that's just my uh, opinion, because obviously I am anti-capitalist. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to figure out that they've basically uh, developed a... Uh, what is kind of a, a sort of a protection racket where, um, you know, uh, you, there's the famous line, uh, you've got a nice place here, sure would be, uh, you know, unfortunate if something were to happen to it. Um, <laughs> and so it's both very just funny, but also really, really fascinating and shows once again, that animals have a lot more capacity for cognition than we once gave them credit for. Okay, let us move on to another uh, animal, one of our favorites around here. Let's talk about cats. New research suggests that cats love catnip, Nepeta catararia, or silver vine, Actinidia polygama, which is apparently the uh, sort of um, southern hemisphere version of catnip from what i can tell because it protects them from mosquitoes which is very interesting nepeta hang on a second nepetalicotol provides a chemical defense for felines of all sizes and shapes from the scourge of some kinds of mosquito bites apparently and so researchers led by Maseo Miyazaki from Iwate University in Japan studied how Neptetalitical 
affects feline behavior and the opioid receptors. The insect propellant nature of the chemical was previously unstudied. Now, there had been some previous association, but no actual data. And so this is really interesting because it could technically lead to commercial usages. The team is the first to show that Nepetalacotol is a potent bioactive compound to cats. It was known that the chemical has a neurological effect on cats, but catnip, a member of the mint family, and silvervine, a kind of kiwi fruit, also contain many other bioactive compounds. Now, you probably know how these plants cause cats to act. They begin to rub their heads and faces against the plant or an infused toy or just some uh, dried uh, sprinkles of it. They roll around. They look like they're having a really good time. And then, you know, this lasts from between 5 to 15 minutes. And then the cat goes into what is called the crash phase, where they basically come down off of their high and lounge around um, for an hour or more. And now, while we know what happens, it's long been a mystery as to why, both biologically and evolutionarily. The team studied 25 lab cats, 30 feral cats, and several big cats, including leopards, jaguars, and lynx. They studied how the cats responded to filter paper laced with nepetalactol, and all of the cats responded as, it, as is expected from the plant. Uh, they also tested dogs and mice who didn't respond at all. They also tested other bioactive ingredients, but none was as, as potent. And so the researchers found that the chemical activates the feline's opioid system, causing elevated levels of endorphins. And so when they did further research, they found that if the endorphins were suppressed um, by drugs, the cats did not respond to the nepetalcatol. Of course, we still need to look at how they might be using this as an insect repellent. The researchers found that cats who had fur covered in the chemical attracted far fewer mosquitoes, specifically the species A. allopictus, than untreated animals. In some cases, they attracted half of the mosquitoes, only half the mosquitoes of unprotected controls. These results show that Nepelicotol transferred to face and head fur by rubbing against silver vine leaves functions as a repellent against A. albopictus in cats, the authors write. This is convincing evidence that the characteristic rubbing and rolling response functions to transfer plant chemicals that provide mosquito repellency to cats. Now, it's therefore probably not simply that cats like the euphoric feeling, but that there is an actual evolutionary benefit to enjoying catnip. Now, researchers will need to continue to explore why the plant only has this effect on felines and if the repellent effect is found in nature and not just the lab. They'll also need to see if the chemical protects against A. aegypti, 
the mosquito known for spreading yellow fever, dengue, and Zika. Now, Miyazaki posits that because felines offer, often rely on stealth, a repellent that reduces their susceptibility to both the irritation of biting mosquitoes and the diseases that these insect vectors carry is likely to provide a strong selective advantage. But that still does not explain why it would have only developed in felines. One hypothesis is that felines developed specific olfactory receptors, which may have been a crucial, a quote, crucial pre-adaptation that allowed the connection to evolve. And so the next step is to try to identify those olfactory receptors to also look for the genes which cause the behavioral changes. And again, there is some indication that the compound may be used in a new class of mosquito repellents, but that is definitely yet to be determined. So don't rush out and start uh, slathering yourself with catnip um, in order to repel mosquitoes. Luckily, it's winter, so hopefully uh, you won't have you won't remember this by the spring to do such a silly thing. Okay. So let us move now from mammals onto things that are a little more, uh, they're a little smaller and a little more water-based. And so we're going to talk about a tiny freshwater animal called a hydra. And so hydra are very simple animals without a brain, but it turns out they still require a sleep-like state. We now have strong evidence that animals must have acquired the need to sleep before acquiring a brain, study lead author Taichi Q. Ito, an assistant professor at Kyushu University in Japan, said in a statement. All animals sleep in one way or another, from mammals to insects and even roundworms, but all of those animals have a central nervous system or brain, so it wasn't clear which evolved first. Now, jellyfish, which also lack a brain, have demonstrated sleep-like behavior, but the new study shows that their relative, the hydra, not only sleeps, but responds to the same molecules which regulate sleep in animals which do not have central nervous systems. Based on our findings and previous reports regarding jellyfish, we can say that sleep evolution is independent of brain evolution, Ito said. The researchers took video of hydra to monitor their movement and to determine whether they had a state that mimicked sleep or at least a state of reduced movement, which could be disrupted with a flashlight. They found that the hydra have cycles of active and sleep states, which last around four hours. And like other animals, disrupting this sleep state with things like the aforementioned light, or vibrations, temperature changes, things like that, resulted in sleep deprivations as measured by a need for longer sleep afterwards and reduced cell growth. The researchers also exposed the hydra to melatonin and the neurotransmitter GABA, which regulates sleep in people, and found that they increased sleep activity in the hydras. Interestingly, interestingly though, dopamine usually a stimulant, instead promoted sleep in hydras. So when the hydras were sleep-deprived, the researchers found changes in the expression of more than 200 genes, including some involved in sleep regulation in other animals. 
These experiments provide strong evidence that animals acquired sleep-related mechanisms before the evolutional development of the central nervous system, and that many of these mechanisms were, were conserved as brains evolved, Ito said. So, it looks like getting some sleep is a problem that has plagued animals long into our evolutionary past. So, that is a good look into sleep, but let's move on to an even more fundamental question. I suppose that's a pretty fundamental question, actually. But let's move on to a different fundamental question, which is how it is that land animals developed. How exactly did we manage to crawl out of the sea and to populate the land? And so in the last 20 years, we found some pretty excellent fossils, but we also have some animals that still are alive that we can look at. And so researchers decided to look at the genome of the lungfish, which has both gills and a primitive lung system. And so they wanted to look at how they may help inform us about how that transition happened. So the first primitive land-dwelling animals escaped from the sea around 420 million years ago, which honestly is frankly a geological blink of an eye. Um, I've talked about this before, but like humans, we've been on this planet for barely a minute. Um, if you look at a geological timetable, uh, if you drew a line with a number two pencil, that's about how long humans have been on the earth. And so animals in general have been on the earth for a blink of an eye, um, frankly. And so those creatures uh, that developed then became the ancestors of all land animals with a backbone known as tetrapods. And so one of the traits that may have helped with this transition was having a large genome like modern lungfish. And so what they did was they sequenced the genome of the Australian lungfish, Neoceratodus fosteri, and that turns out to be the largest known animal genome which has been sequenced successfully or sequenced fully, I should say. It's 14 times the size of the human genome. New techniques for DNA sequencing and the availability of huge computing power allowed researchers to, to decode the 43 billion nucleotide sequence. When you look at it from a genomic perspective, lungfish are genomically halfway between fish and a land-based vertebrate, biologist Siegfried Schlossening from the Research Institute of Molecular Pathology, or the IMP in Austria, noted. There are six living species of lungfish, four in Africa, one in South America, and the one in Australia. They first developed around 400 million years ago. The Australian lungfish retains the most ancestral features and was originally classified as an amphibian because, well, it's apparently really weird, even for fish standards. It has a mix of fish and newt features and features leg-like lobed fins. The intermediate species can, this intermediate species can live up to 100 years. That's pretty impressive. 
And so they can actually uh, be compared to fossils from their 100 million year old extinct forebearers. So they haven't developed a lot. Um, and of course, that's, again, not in not some sort of uh, knock against evolution. It simply means that they haven't had to adapt because what they're doing works. And so the genome confirmed that they are actually our closest relatives in the fish family, uh, beating out the infamous coelacanths, which is what I was basically just referring to a moment ago, um, because when coelacanths were found and they looked just like fossils, a lot of people glommed onto that to say, oh, evolution isn't real. But of course, evolution is totally real. It just means that they haven't had to adapt because what they're doing works for them. So what did we find in the genome which suggests how they transitioned to land? This required a number of evolutionary innovations, including air breathing, limbs, posture, prevention of desiccation, nitrogen excretion, production, reproduction, and olfaction, the researchers write in their paper. And so they found the same genes responsible for embryonic lung development in humans were already present in the lungfish genome. In addition, they found genes for ulna and radius arm bones, including Hox C14 and Sal1, which had previously not been found in fish genomes. Such novelties might have predisposed the lungfishmen to conquer land demonstrating how the lungfish genome can contribute to better understanding of this major transition during vertebrate evolution, the team wrote. They also found a host of genes that developed to detect odor on land, which while shrinking those that coded for smell underwater. And a lot of the genome consists of copied sections of the DNA sequence. And in fact, this is one of the well-known ways that evolution has moved forward, as it helps an organism to adapt to changes in environment if there's a lot of DNA to work with. There is no doubt that the newly sequenced genome will unveil more of the secrets of this bizarre vertebrate in the future, said IMP cellular geneticist Ellie Tanaka. Not only can it teach us things about adaptations to life on land, but it may also explain how certain genomes evolved to be so big. All right, let us end tonight by talking about a fossil that is somewhere between the tiny hydra and the ancient lungfish. A 480 million year old fossil unearthed in Morocco many years ago puzzled scientists as it was shaped like a star, but otherwise lacks features of the two modern types of starfish-like animals, starfish and brittle stars. Having neither the long, thin arms of the brittle star or the chunky armor plates of a starfish. It has now been formally described as an ancestor to both species. We've, we've discovered exactly how the first starfish-like animal appeared and then how it evolved into those two ones which we have today, which were almost everywhere in the sea, said study lead author Aaron Hunter, a paleontologist in the Earth Sciences Department at the University of Cambridge. That's what makes it special. Kenta Brigiaster Fezuantensis lived on the ancient supercontinent of Gondwana, which 
most closely relates to kind of a supercontinent around where Antarctica is today. And so they lived in the early Ordovician period between 485.4 to 460 million years ago. And they would have lived on an ancient cold water reef surrounded mainly by giant filter feeders. And so the researchers aren't sure what the creature would have eaten, though evidence of a jaw suggests it would not have been a filter feeder. The researchers took careful observations about the structure of the animal to try to, to try to determine features of its ancestry using both biology and a mathematical algorithm which helped to place it in the family tree. Starfish and brittlefish are actually two of the five groups of organisms called echidnoderms. The other members of the group are sea urchins, sea cucumbers, and crinodia, which are sea, leather, sea lilies and feather stars. The new fossil had a similar structure to modern sea lilies, which suggests they may also trace their origin to this ancient species. Now, the creature would have emerged during the Great Ordovician biodiversification event. It's when life really got going in terms of being diverse, and that starfish is one of the first animals that we'd recognize today in the sea, Hunter said. And so the fossil is also important because it allows researchers to link starfish-like animals from around 480 million years ago to more recent fossils and modern-day animals. However, as with everything, more research is still needed, uh, especially on late Cambrian period species in order to fill in the gaps between the earliest echidnoderms and the five groups we see today. And so that is one of the really important things is that we uh, still need to kind of connect some of those dots. And a lot of that ends up going into the Cambrian period where uh, we haven't talked about the Cambrian in a while, but the Cambrian is a wild place full of weird, weird animals. A lot of them we can't tell if they were an animal or if they were a plant. Um, all The Cambrian was just full of all sorts of ideas um, from an evolutionary standpoint, all sorts of different Things were tried out, and um, yeah, it's pretty crazy in the Cambrian, and a lot of things, again, like um, some of the animals that emerged from that time, it's hard to tell which way was up on them. Um, it's hard to tell whether they would have been uh, carnivorous, herbivorous. Um, everything about them is weird and um frankly hard to figure out well we've been working on it um over the years and so um hopefully we will learn more as time goes on and it's always good to be able to slot those um ancestors into those um family trees in order to be able to really be able to see how things have developed over time all right so um, that is pretty much all the time we have for tonight. Um, I would say that I am cautiously optimistic about the future. I was actually, again, quite pleasantly surprised by the fact that we moved towards having um, more uh, environmental rules changed already. 
And so um, that is quite exciting. But I do want to remind you to stay vigilant and keep an eye on things because just because the uh, new administration is better than the last one doesn't mean they still won't need to have pressure kept up on them. Okay, that is all for tonight and have a good week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.